0: How can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership
1: of commons, the air, soils, water, biological diversity, cultural back to. Cultural
0: diversity the is as
1: Severe critical as biological diversity. In this epic struggle oh, to preserve a habitable That
2: planet. is the only thing which is sustainable
1: the place mad. that you love is now under siege.
2: Deregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet
1: these are system problems
0: our humanity is
1: we at stake we shouldn't state. ask whether we can survive these are existential or not. questions as much as they are systemic questions action
0: informed by knowledge of get down place to work. you're listening to the Schumacher conversations a series of lively discussions featuring some of the foremost voices in the movement for new economics The conversations engage prominent E.F. Schumacher speakers as they reflect on past lectures and their enduring relevance given current economic, social, and ecological realities.
1: Any public program to preserve land or produce food is hopeless if it does not tend to right the balance between numbers of people and acres of land and to encourage long-term stable connections between families and small
0: farms. have a look at it. Otto Sharmer and Matt Stinchcombe engaged in the following Schumacher Conversation moderated by John Fullerton on September 3rd, 2020.
1: Good afternoon everyone and thanks for joining the Schumacher Conversation Series. I am John Fullerton and I'm going to be your host today uh, and moderating a conversation between two of my friends and colleagues, um, Matt Stinchcombe and Otto Sharmer. It was about 15 years ago when I got in my car to drive up to the Schumacher Library to meet Susan Witt and browse the collection. Like so many of us, Fritz Schumacher had pierced deep into the inner chambers of my soul as I was beginning an important search. So it's truly an honor to be your host today. And uh, I assure you, you won't be disappointed with this uh, conversation among two of my colleagues that I admire greatly. Uh, Matt and Otto each gave a lecture at the Schumacher Lecture Series about seven years ago in the relative placid period between the Great Recession and the present Great Convulsion, or whatever we're gonna end up calling this in the future. The way this is gonna work is we're gonna hear each of them reflect briefly on the talk they gave back then and what has changed in their thinking and their ideas during this tumultuous period since that time. And then we'll shift into a conversation Uh, much of it triggered by your questions and and, uh, reflections that you can post on the chat box. Um, uh, We're we're going to uh, uh, disable the the comments area, but please send your questions or reflections into the chat box and and Rachel and John at the Schumacher Center are gonna help me uh, uh, coordinate and, and synthesize those. Um, we'll get to as many as your of your questions as you can and keep this as conversational as we can So with that as an introduction, uh, I'd like to introduce Matt first who's going to kick us off um, uh, I, I'd like to make a very brief set of comments not sort of read a formal bio, but uh, Matt I've probably known for maybe seven years or so um, uh, and I think of him as an artist first and foremost and in a sense, applying his artistry to the question of work and the question of commerce. Um, I think he would agree he's a somewhat accidental dot-com hero uh, building, uh, participating in the early management team of Etsy and building it into a successful community of artisans, uh, sort of an eBay for artists in case you're not familiar with it, but with a very clear mission to serve. And I'm sure he'll reflect on uh, that company and what's happened since he and others of the founders have left. He now leads a new venture in the Hudson Valley called Boat Builders, and uh, and is which is very much in service of doing good work in the community. And of course, he's on the board of the Schumacher Center itself. And before I introduce Otto, why don't we ask Matt to uh, make his introductory comments?
3: All right. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, it's a great honor to be here um, with all of you, and especially with Otto and John, who. I was actually rereading my lecture this morning and uh, realized that, uh, well, one, I referenced Otto's work uh, very explicitly and um, had I been more familiar with John's, it sounds like it was you know right out of the same kind of thinking. So it's, it's um, both an honor and intimidating uh, to be with you all here. Um, so I gave a lecture, I think back in uh, 2011, and um, it was really about Um, My own kind of uh, unconventional and um, unusual journey into um, being a business executive, which was something I never imagined I would be. Uh, I was a professional musician before that in a kind of mid-level indie rock band and thought that's what I'd always be doing. Um, And found myself just by chance uh, at Etsy because the founder of the company was my roommate, And he asked me to come along and join him. And so, um, you know, I jumped right into it, uh, kind of like with anything I'd ever done, not ever really knowing exactly what I was doing and um, mostly feeling a little bit like an imposter, you know, feeling like I'd always at some point someone would figure out that I had no idea what I was doing. And so I would be kind of secretly educating myself at night, uh, you know, to prepare for a board meeting or something like that the more I followed a kind of conventional business education path, um, the less relevant it felt to me. And um, just by fate, I got introduced to the work of E.F. Schumacher, and that kind of sent me uh, on a different path. And the more I followed that path, um, the more I realized that the kind of consciousness behind business was, was really wrong. And um, started thinking a lot about how could I um, do business in a different way, in a way that actually was meant not just to maximize shareholder return, but to create as much value uh, for all living beings and places. Um, and so that uh, is a path that's continued to this day. Um, in that lecture, you know, I referenced a lot of the, uh, the people and the thinking that was informing uh, my work at Etsy Uh, that included people like E.F. Schumacher and Wendell Berry, um, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, Danilo Meadows, uh, just to name a few. And uh, started thinking about, you know, how we might want to um, look to other places to inform uh, the work that we do. Uh, And so that uh, very much became my mission at Etsy, to work inside of the organization to equip everybody in the company with both the means and more importantly, probably the desire uh, to maximize the social and ecological benefit that their choices had, um, every choice that they made in the company. And um, in rereading the lecture today, I was like, oh, okay. You know, this seems like I'm still, I still believe all of this. I think if anything's changed for me, You know there is there kind of two main points uh one is that um i'm less convinced that it's just business alone um you know uh after etsy i started something called the good work institute that sprang out of etsy it started as etsy's foundation uh following etsy's public offering and the idea was to create a kind of business school that would equip people with this this kind of thinking and The more I thought about it, um, the more I realized that in a lot of ways, if we weren't really focusing on the deeper consciousness behind these things, we were just teaching people to do business in slightly less bad ways, not necessarily more good ways. Um, And I was also the first time that I was running a nonprofit organization. And I started thinking to myself, you know, this is just as entrepreneurial as Etsy. You know, why are we making this distinction between for profit business, nonprofit work? Uh, the work that I do as a parent, the work that I do as a volunteer in my community or on boards. And um, I started thinking much more about what we do in the world is work, regardless of whether it's your job and regardless of whether it's a business. So that's kind of the first big shift was it's broader than just business. It's work. And um, what I'm particularly interested in is good work. And that's... um, An idea or a framing of this that that comes from Wendell Berry, who wrote an essay called conservation is good work. And it talks about really um, Working in ways that confer honor on all the people and places that are touched by what you do. Uh, And so that's, that was a shift for us. Um, The Good Work Institute shifted from just being about small businesses um, to being about work. Uh, and so that's that's something I would probably update now uh, in my lecture. Um, the other one is that um, all of the ideas that I was sharing, um, like I said, they still resonate with me. They seem to make sense, um, but they weren't placed. And I think that that's the other big distinction for me. I, I was always a big proponent of local living economies, um, inspired by the work of, of Schumacher and Um, meeting Judy Wicks back in 2010 and um, you know that was that was the that was became very clear to me where you know the best work is done locally in my mind and that we need to really focus uh, our efforts on place and our places and so um, that also led to a shift in my own life where I I moved uh, with my family um, to the Hudson Valley, which is our adopted place. And I focused all my efforts now there, or here, uh, where I am. And so, um, because I've, I do feel like it's all about relationships, uh, relationships to the natural world, relationships to the people in your community, uh, relationships to all the living beings. And those relationships are best made and best strengthened in place, um, in proximity. Uh, So that's another part that, you know, I touched on in my lecture, but I don't think I was as clear about it then as I am now. Um, And so um, I've devoted um, my life now to working in place. Um, There's uh, a a quote that I love um, from, um, oh my God, I'm forgetting his name now. Um, (laughs) The poet uh, whose name will come to me in a second, but he talks about Uh, Basically, finding your place on the earth, digging in, and taking responsibility from there. And that's kind of been my uh, mantra moving forward. So, that's, yeah, that's what I would say. That's how I would change. uh, Isn't that Wendell Berry, Matt? It's not Wendell Berry, but it might as well be. It's the, um, Gary, I'm I'm embarrassed that I'm forgetting it right now, but it'll come to me in a second. I'm sure Wendell said that, too. I'm sure he did, yeah. (laughs) There's, uh, yeah, and so that's, you know, and I, I would definitely, um, yeah, I mean, I think that I'm just finding anyways that, you know, if we can all kind of dig into our places, that's how we'll actually build the future that we want, place by place, community by community, and come up with solutions that are particular to each place. And I think that's something that, that Wendell Berry said too, in that conservation is good work essay, you know, um, every place is particular, and every um, solution or every intervention needs to be honor that place and be of that place. so you can take you know the ideas um, and some of the tools that we may be employing in the Hudson Valley and use them in your place, but they 're going to be different uh, if they 're in in Cambridge or in connecticut there
1: 's another quote and i'm i 'm by by another great poet who i 'm also blanking on right now, but I will, read, <laughs> which is, it goes something like, um, the abstract without the particular becomes the demonic, which resonated strongly with me. Yeah, that's for sure. So Great. So is that, can we uh, shift over to Otto, just to Please. get things started? Great. Thank you, uh, Matt. Uh, so, so a brief introduction. To Otto Scharn.er Otto Scharmer, not that he needs an introduction. Um, I was thinking about how I was going to introduce Otto, and I I, um, I came up with the following, which is that to say Otto is a teacher at MIT Sloan School is like saying Einstein was a scientist. And and I don't mean to suggest Otto is Einstein, but I've had the pleasure to participate in one formal lecture. Uh, where he was teaching and in several meetings where he's facilitating and I honestly think Otto has got to be one of the most gifted teachers um, certainly in this space of imagining the great transition and possibly in in any field of of Endeavor these days. He's truly gifted teacher. Um, He's also the co-founder of the Presencing Institute and he's um, got this idea some of you have heard of called Theory U, which he's trotting around the world uh, fairly effectively, and I'm sure we'll hear a bit about that uh, as well. So uh, over to you, Otto. Why don't you uh, share your reflections on your former lecture and how you're thinking today. I also have to say, Otto is, uh, like Matt, one of my true uh, inspirations and teachers in my own work. So um,
2: just want to get that in there as well. Thank you, John. And um, hello, everyone. Um, I loved um, uh, listening um, uh, to you, Matt. And so the good work, right? So that also echoes a little bit with good trouble, right? Kind of. Uh, yeah. And um, so, uh, and that um, reframing that that you shared and the, the particulars um, uh, of, of the place is, um, and how to bring that to scale. That's also very much in, uh, what I'm trying to make a, a contribution to. And, um, what I, what I thought is, um, that, um, I would share a little bit, um, uh, about the lens of, um, awareness-based systems change. And then, um, talk a little bit about what, what, what do we see when we look through that lens at the current situation, what's different today than 2013 when I gave my Schumacher lecture. And um, then want to end with, uh, where do I hear the call for action now? Because at the end of the day, kind of that's probably what brings us together here, that, that we, we sense something and maybe can uh, articulate that more together than in the conversation. So, um, to so, um, uh, go to the first part, um, the um, so you have seen something like that probably many times. Kind of uh, a systems change lens, uh, the iceberg model, and um, what um, which starts with a very simple distinctions with symptoms at the top and like root issues uh, below the waterline, and. Um, so what you see here is um, uh, structures, mental models, thought, and then kind of a fourth level in the model, right? Uh, a third level of the root sources uh, and um, uh, called source. And uh, uh, that's, that could be also called awareness and systems uh, or awareness or consciousness. So what you see, these four levels together are basically a framework for consciousness-based systems change. And they can be summarized with three simple lines. You cannot understand a system unless you change it. Famously Kurt Lewin, um, the founder of Action Research. Uh, Two, you cannot change a system unless you transform consciousness. So that means uh, you really need to address, particularly today, all four levels, right? If you leave out this deeper level of awareness and consciousness, you're just scratching the surface. And then lastly, um, you cannot transform consciousness unless you make a system see and sense itself. And that's really then the essence of um, interventions, right? How we can go through this uh, great transition that you were referencing, uh, John. So that really means how to bend the beam of observation, back onto the observing self. Not only on the level of the individual where we call that mindfulness and reflection, but also on the level of the collective. And the first uh, uh, time I came across kind of this deeper view to change, right? This, this, this awareness-based systems view was when talking with the late CEO of Hanover Insurance, Bill O'Brien, who summarized his um, many years of leading transformational change with this line. The success of an intervention depends on the interior condition of the intervener. So the success of what I do as a change maker depends on the inner place from that I operate. And when I would describe today this inner place, I would describe it with these three terms. Um, Open mind, open heart, open will, aka curiosity, compassion, courage. And what it requires of us is really to stop habitual ways of operating and, you know, uh, going, cultivating this opening process. And that's basically you know that was really the when i gave the lecture that was basically the um, you know the main focus of the work right so that's kind of what we have been practicing and refining and developing methods and tools around now that's one part right it's an important part of current reality uh, but there's something else that has happened since and that is when we open the eyes, we look around, when you when you open your, your newspaper, uh, what do you see on the front page? The exact opposite, right? It's kind of not the opening of mind, heart, will, but the close, the closing, the f- freeze reaction of the mind, heart, will, AKA ignorance, hate, and fear. And so that means it's not about Suspending and seeing, but it's uh, projecting and blinding. It's not about empathizing and sensing, but often what we see is entrenching and desensing, right, you know, filter bubbles and whatever it is, instead of letting go and connecting with the emerging future, present what we see often ourselves and other being you know holding on to what is and disconnecting with emerging future possibilities and instead of uh, birthing the new into reality we engage in collective patterns of uh violence and destruction and self-destruction so that's um You know, you can call this Trumpism, you can call this, uh, which is the symptom, right? But what are the the, um, deeper issues? So that's um, the the bigger picture. Um, I think that's one uh, phenomenon that just, that was there before, but it just got a lot stronger. And I think as a community of change makers, we need to ask the question, what is our response here? Not only individually, but also on a level of the collective, on the level of the whole system. And another thing that has changed for me, and that really needs, leads into the 2020 moment, right, which is COVID and Black Lives Matter, um, is looking into our own shadow. And I think about, so looking at our own shadow, I think about three forms of violence that we see today. Direct violence, structural violence, and attentional violence. We know a lot about the first two, but I think the third one, right, uh, and what I mean with that is not seeing others in terms of who they really are and who they could be. That's very much at the root of kind of the, uh, uh, the, the, the amplification of direct and structural violence. And what it requires us as change makers is beginning to learn to see our own blind spots, individually and also collectively. So for example, um, you know, in the Black Lives Matter moment, um, I, so my own not seeing there, right? So the first blind spot is being in denial, not seeing, kind of, uh, which is really, um, Uh, has to do with ignorance, bias, and blinding. And for me, it was really uh, not being fully aware of the continuity from the historic continuity from slave paroles to the police brutality uh, today. Um, The second blind spot is you see something, but you are not feeling it, right? It's not frozen mind, but frozen heart. You're stuck in kind of one skin if you want and you're engaging in othering othering and cynicism and and hate and i think uh, uh, in terms of structural violence yes i have been aware of the structural violence right against uh, african americans and so forth in our country here in the us but did i really feel it Uh, or was there a wall right that separated me from um, what happened to others, to my own actual experience. And then, uh, the third blind spot, I think that we need to embrace today and that we need to engage today on a collective level is apathy, right? I see it, I feel it. I empathize, right? I see eight minutes, 46 seconds, and yet I'm doing nothing. Right? So that's kind of the apathy, which means frozen will. Which uh, you know uh, is um, manifesting either in depression, right? So you're kind of too much stuck inside yourself, or destruction. Kind of you go the other way. So that's another update, I would say, right? Engaging our blind spot not as a problem to fix, but as the true source for transformational change, and. Uh, Okay, so coming back to, so if if what we have seen the last few years is a huge amplification of this space, the space of absencing, what is our our response on the level of the collective? And I would say um, the response on the level of collective uh, needs to include massive innovations in infrastructures on the level of learning, on the level of democracy and on the level of the economy. So new learning infrastructures in terms of deep learning infrastructures, whole person, whole systems way of learning, new democratic infrastructures that make democracy more direct distributed dialogic and place-based and new economic infrastructures that shift the paradigm of economic thoughts from ego system awareness to Ecosystem awareness. And I want to end with just um, indicating a little bit on this one, the economic transformation, and on this one. Um, So when we look at the economic transformation, so this is going back to Polanyi, right, the great transformation, so the commodity fiction of nature, labor, capital that many of us are aware of. But today, when you talk today about the economy, that's not enough. I mean, we need to talk about the other uh, product factors in the modern production function, technology, management. Of course, we need to include the consumption side and, and governance of the whole thing. So the transformation, the ego to ego shift in the economy is really uh, among others in, at its core requiring us to reframe the traditional economic thought around these seven core dimensions. From an ecosystem awareness, right? To an ecosystem awareness. By which I mean an awareness that is focusing on the well-being of all. So which means reframing nature from a resource to a living ecosystem. Labor from jobs to capital W work as Matt was uh, talking about it capital from extractive to regenerative, as John is talking about it. Technology from creativity diminishing and disabling to creativity enabling. Management from hierarchical to ecosystem leadership. Consumption from GDP focused to really well-being. and governance from traditional, which is markets and hierarchies to awareness-based collective action, um, place-based and regional-based awareness-based collective action. to, to do that, to, to, you know, to bring these collaborative uh, you know, governance structures uh, into life, uh, what does it take? It takes new learning infrastructures. Kind of that was the other piece that I mentioned. And that's of course what I am focusing on a lot So what's the the two big things going on in the learning and leadership space today? I would say it's this, it's deepening and broadening. So deepening means from head centric learning, technical to head and hand, reflective to transformational learning, head, heart and hand. And broadening means from individuals to teams, to organizations, to the whole ecosystem. So when you look at this matrix where, and look at the, all, all institutions in society today, not just education, but all of them, where are all, where's the whole focus going? It's going into the bottom left. That's where all the you know focus and all the dollars go. Where's the blind spot? The blind spot is what we truly need today, which is transformation learning infrastructures, not only individually, but also on the level of the collective, particularly on an ecosystem level. And so that's basically where I today feel the call, which is if we want to um, really um, support this kind of uh, planetary healing, civilization renewal, we need to activate new collect- so generative social fields by which I mean collect- co-creative collaborative relationships mm. and to- at scale, right? Place-based, but also region-based and at scale. To do that, we need a support structure. And that's what I call school for transformation. Uh, A school for transformation that is democratizing the access to transformation literacy, by which I mean the capacity to shift a social field from ego to eco. By integrating science, consciousness, art, technology, and profound social change. That's um, where, um, you know, and it needs to be democratized means making it uh, accessible to anyone on the planet kind of that actually wants to cultivate this dimension of his own being and uh, of his own world. So that's a little bit um, where, um, where my focus is. I can't say it's completely shifted from seven years ago. I, I feel like my whole life is you know, always moving in there. So I wish there was more change, but I think kind of what, is, what, is, um, what is interesting really and encouraging is what's, what felt like a distant maybe vision or aspiration, a lofty aspiration seven years ago right now is actually beginning to happen it feels much more close to a really tangible man- level of manifestation and of course it's also a lot more necessary right so that's kind of the flip side of that but that's a little bit you know where not a total change from seven years ago but uh, i would say maybe it's a lot more relevant today something about it being darkest before the dawn that's right uh that's uh that's exactly how i feel john yeah so
1: matt uh, i mean i'm sure your your
2: your head is bursting as mine is with thoughts
1: and reflections but but since you're the uh the honored guest here you get to go so what what does that bring up for you um well i was telling otto before the call i i
3: I, uh, read his reread his lecture this morning and it felt exactly um so relevant right now that um And and I totally agree that, um, you know, this is in many ways an education problem. And, um, you know, I um, am working on another project right now uh, with um, Martin Ping at Hawthorne Valley and a woman named Dawn Breeze called PlaceCore. That's um, uh, uh, with a mission to cultivate a calling to know, love and serve our places. And the know, love and serve is really the head, the heart and the hands. And so I do believe that this is what we're talking about right now, this kind of transformational learning. Um, I think that the um, coronavirus is, um, you know, a a profound opportunity and really just making it so clear about how necessary a different kind of, of education and being is. It's also, I think, really um, laying bare just the incredible inequality in this country and the systemic racism and who has access to these kinds of opportunities. So I completely agree uh, with Otto that it's transformational education that's needed and it needs to be for everybody. Um, So um, yeah, I'm just, you know, I was just jotting down notes and just wishing that I was in one of Otto's classes right now, (laughs) really more than anything else. Um, But I I couldn't agree more. And I I also agree with um, the importance of direct action. And that's, you know, when I think about um, this moment, which does feel very um, dark and and very scary right now in this country, Um, but what was, you know, giving me hope um prior to the coronavirus, and I hope will soon again is looking at things like Extinction Rebellion and the Sunrise Movement and seeing how young people are no longer, you know, willing to be as complacent as many people in my generation are or were. Um, it's the same thing with Black Lives Matter. I think that, you know, um especially uh you know, for white people, it's this moment of actually realizing the systemic racism in this country and waking up to that and hopefully taking direct action and making something better and something different. So,
1: um, yeah. yeah. With, with, with that cue, I need to make a point, which is that um, I wasn't intentionally, I wasn't initially going to moderate this conversation among three white men, um, yeah. but it, it ended up being that way through some scheduling, but uh, just to make that statement and hopefully we can at, at the very least tap into our inner feminine self while we while we have this conversation um but but um the the lecture series in its collective is a is a very diverse um uh group of, of thought leaders in this conversation um otto maybe you could reflect a bit on on uh, matt's talk and and comments and particularly you know where you intersected this idea of um, the difference between jobs and work and and you know in, in the scheme of all of our challenges, you know, what is it about humans and work that makes that such an important piece of the of the puzzle? And and you know, if you think about how we've hierarchically organized into jobs, you know, how much damage have we done to the human psyche and how long will it take to for us to recover? Because mo- most people are on the left or the right um, arguing for policies that create jobs? I mean, we're we're not even in this conversation yet in the mainstream.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I um, uh, I think um, Matt's description was very um, much resonating with um, with what, what I see what I also feel in my own life and what um, you could say is also a very privileged view, which is that we can um, um, free ourselves from traditional jobs and uh, go after stuff where we really feel a deep resonance uh, with uh, uh, our own mission, with our own sense of purpose. And... um, what um, yet the economic structure that we have today is ba- basically making uh, a large part of the population um, uh, not having that possibility, right? And um, so uh, the COVID was not the uh, the equalizer; it was the uh, the uh, amplifier, right? Of of and the accelerator of, of inequality in laying bare what was uh, broken uh, before and i think one example is just all the essential workers i mean how how is it possible to organize an economy and to call that economic when everyone who is holding an uh, essential job that is essential for our own well-being doesn't have a living wage doesn't even have a health uh, uh, insurance that that comes with it and um, so it's those that's like the 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 that's an extreme version of that but the general version is that jobs of course um, create they're a positive thing to some degree right so because they they make me part of a global web of um, working for others and you know creating a well-being but they're also uh, uh, keeping me stuck in an old structure so that's when we rethink um, how to move from jobs to capital W work, which is something that's connected with my own deeper sense of purpose, the way uh, Matt was sharing that, when we ask ourselves, what would it take to take that to scale? What comes to to my mind is two or three simple things. Uh, One is basic income for everyone. Uh, The second one is, free quality education, healthcare for everyone. And then the third one is somehow democratizing the access to, uh, to capital or to en- enabling infrastructures, right? With democratizing, I don't mean like everyone gets the same. I mean kind of everyone has the same um, access or opportunity kind of to, uh, to go after them, which is of course, uh, the opposite of what we have today, where basically our education, our health system, uh, and also our remuneration system is um, c- cementing um, not only a class society, but you know you could argue really a caste society, right? And um, and that's something that needs to be transformed. That's more visible to more people now. So thanks to COVID, and that is part of the big. Uh, uh, the, the great transformation of the decade ahead of us that that we need to get our arms around.
1: Yeah, so those three um, kind of core, I don't know what to call them, you know, human infrastructures, human um, enablers sort of fit very nicely into the bucket that I would call empowered participation, or I do call in a living systems frame. And so you're you're making the case for a society that is that is organized around the same patterns and principles of other living systems and how they work. So I um, I have to take the chance to to uh, point that out in in this conversation. Um, I wanted to um, uh, shift course here for a second, and you know it's it's uncommon in a in a Schumacher conversation to talk about uh, technology companies and stock markets and stock prices and and, uh, and the, the sort of financial economy. But, you know, as, as um, I forget which of you pointed out, but the, the divergence between, you know, the COVID has sort of accelerated the inequalities and the, the discrepancies of our system. And, you know, nowhere is that better signified than the stock price of Amazon and the wealth of the richest man on the planet. Um, but there's another company that Matt knows well called Etsy, which I did a little research has tripled since COVID in price. It's now worth I think thirteen billion dollars, which I suspect Matt, when you left the company, it maybe was approaching a billion dollars or two billion. I don't know. Um, and and I know from a conversation we had years ago that that you know you were concerned about the culture and the mission and all that. So. I would love for both of you to reflect on, and this isn't really a question, it's more of a an agitation in my head. But you know, I think I think we all share this um this enormous um power of place and importance of place. Um local economy is just one manifestation of place. Place is a bigger idea, really, than local economy. Uh and yet, and and we all share this. Um, a passion for the importance of community. And and community, of course, happens really well in place, but it also happens digitally now. And so help us just reflect on what's happening in the kind of rapid acceleration of the future to the present with Alibaba and Etsy and, um, uh, and of course, Amazon, which I think of as very different beasts. I think Etsy and Alibaba are, and, and Shopify are actually more molded out of the same ethos of service to community uh, and Amazon decidedly not um, but help us make sense of what's happening in the world of technology and technology companies and technology platforms and you know how much of it is just terrible and bad and an evidence of a symptom of the problem and how much of it is actually uh, uh, to use Otto's expression, sort of, we're beginning to see the future before it's arrived, and maybe there's a way to do a little jujitsu and see what's happening as as a positive thing, if that's a question. And either of you, whoever wants to tackle that, fire away.
2: Matt, you, you should start with uh, Etsy. I mean, that that's an interesting story. Um, yeah,
3: well, I, you know, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that, you know, I'm not involved with the company a- anymore. So I don't, you know, I can't, I don't have any insight into, um, you know, the decisions that are being made there on a day-to-day basis. It, you know, geez, can, performance is
1: no guarantee of, <laughs> that's that.
3: right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me just some that. So, you know, um, that said, you know, I do think that there were, things that I I really loved about Etsy that I still love about Etsy and challenges that I had with Etsy when I was at the company too. And the things that I love about Etsy is that, um, you know, unlike in Amazon or something like that, although Amazon has elements of this, you know, what you have on Etsy is a platform that's made up of a big number of small things rather than a small number of very big things. That's something I talked about in my Schumacher lecture too. So, you know, you're dealing directly with however many million small businesses. And, you know, I witnessed firsthand the impact that Etsy had in lots of people's lives in terms of allowing them to do more work with a capital W, whether it was, um, you know, uh, pursuing a passion and making a life out of it, or making a living out of it, uh, or connecting directly with other artisans, or, you know, the validation that came from people loving that something, something that someone made um and so those elements of etsy still exist you know i i think that the um there is definitely a disconnect between uh stock market prices and reality of the world i don't really understand that world very well and why uh those things are um you know, like why does Etsy all of a sudden worth $15 billion when it was worth, you know, I remember a year ago, the the stock price of Etsy was like $6 or something like that. And now it's a hundred something, right? So that feels kind of crazy. Um, But, um, you know, the challenges that I have had with with Etsy or uh, any technology platform, there's a couple of them. One, you know, at the end of the day, it's still just about encouraging more and more consumption. And I think that that's something that we have to address individually as people who Mm -hmm. consume things, Um, that the company, even though it was, you know, to reference something I said earlier, like a less bad company, you know, at the end of the day, it's still a company that's focused on trying to grow bigger and bigger by selling more and more things. So, you know, when I was at Etsy, you know, what I was really hoping and what I was pushing the company for was, how do we actually sell more essential goods and services? How do we use Etsy as a platform to foster more local commerce, right? So that you're dealing directly with the people in your community. How do you use that platform to um, connect people in the real world? So it's not just about that, that you know, digital commerce. Um, because I think, and that was something that we did work on. And I think I I referenced that in my Schumacher lecture too, where, you know, Amazon, I just read um, the other day, finally got approval to begin drone delivery. And that's something that I mentioned in my Schumacher lecture It's this really Mm. kind of scary dystopian vision of the future, uh, Mm. where, you know, you can now be completely disconnected from any human, right? Like you just order something online and this little helicopter comes no. and drops it in front of your house. I'm like, oh, thank God. I don't have to see that delivery person anymore yeah. or, or anyone in my community. So that's, that's very scary. Whereas I was saying, well, you know, um, if, uh, you know, I'm buying something that I need and I see that there's someone in my neighborhood who has it, why don't we meet at a coffee shop and actually have a conversation and, and develop that deeper relationship? Um, and so that, you know, to me is... Uh, a positive thing you know i'll say about technology in general um my biggest concern is how it fuels disconnection i think we can talk about how we're more connected than ever but i think we're only really connected in these surface ways we're not connected in these deeper ways that are really you know i think about some of the stuff that Otto's saying right where it's 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 um and i see this you know Every day in my own behavior, but in my own in my kids too, you know, who um one thing the pandemic has done is definitely started to break down norms around screen time in my house, uh, right? With you know, my wife and I both trying to work and the kids home you no know, school. It's like it just happens. And I see how immediately addictive these devices are, these platforms are, and it's you know, I think they're designed to be more about consumption rather than creation, right? You're just kind of uh, the downloading piece that Otto talks about and not actually using these tools as tools, because I think that there are powerful technologies. And, you know, to to reference Schumacher, I think it's about appropriate technology and what's the appropriate use of technology, Mm. rather than just, you know, how do we... Uh, make it easier and easier and easier for people to just buy more stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, um, yeah, that's an interesting moment uh, that we're in. Um, And, you know, I'm very interested in thinking about, yeah, how to appropriately use technology to foster more pro-social, pro-ecological behavior. I think Mm -hmm. the last thing I'll say on it is, you know, the, the, uh, coronavirus is, is, is a challenge in, in a way, in a different way, beyond all of the economic fallout and everything else, but and the health consequences. But um, how it's in a way forcing us to actually disconnect more from other people, to be wary of the social interactions, to the real world interactions. And that um, I think that that's going to have um, a really profound effect on things. And, and that technology, whether it's Zoom, or Amazon or whatever makes it really easy to not have to connect in those ways, and that's
1: um, a slippery slope. Yeah, it's like kids when you see them on an airplane and you hand them a book and they they go like this rather than turn the page. Oh,
3: even even my
1: two year old like you know she she gets it so intuitively. Yeah. Where, Imagine know, what you know two years of Zoom on on a five year old is going to do to their brain. Yep. So Otto, I mean, you're obviously you and MIT are are deep into this education technology platform world, and and so you know, and and Matt, I totally agree. The the technology, you know, in business has been hijacked by a you know an advertising business model, which you know, were it not for that, Facebook could be a wonderful thing, um, and and it's been, in my opinion, destroyed by an advertising business model and some. Bad ethics, but um, but but it's the same technology that that Otto is using, in a sense, to to do his you know highly mass distributed and yet connected on a platform approach to to his work. So help us, Otto, understand how you think about all this.
2: Well, I mean, I want to start with really underlining um, uh, everything you just shared, Matt, because I think what you shared is is probably. Um, no one in this loop who is not deeply resonating with every single thing you said. I think that is the issue, and um, we are all deal, uh, we are all challenged by, right, and, and grappling with. And um, yes, so um, I, I am at MIT, and I was actually uh, the other day in a in an interesting panel discussion with. Um, uh folks from Berkeley and one of the other panelists was uh, uh Sanjay Sharma he is the um he was actually has been a key player in really pioneering the whole online learning here at MIT both OCW and then also the MOOCs and MITx so he's the um uh, uh head of digital learning here and then he was commenting on uh, because you know many people say well so now everything is online it's going so well and we are so surprised and so um, how well that can be done and he said well if that's true that's really is uh, that really says how poor the learning was before in the classroom right because uh, if it's going if, if you don't feel the difference when you go online. That is just a statement about the the poverty of the learning environment you created before inside your classroom. And um, so so that's where we have been um, uh, experimenting a little bit with, basically how you can link, um, I I would say um, use technology in a more intentional way that's not uh, focusing on basically Empire building, right? So you could say, or, or revenue maximi- uh, ma- maximization, uh, as you were alluding to, John, with, with the underlying business model. But that's, um, uh, empty, that's uh, organized around intention, reflection, and uh, and well being, um, uh, and um, and learning. So, but before we we could go into that and specify that a little bit. But I, because it's so important, this technology piece. I think also kind of for the Schumacher community here, I just want to bring in, add one more point or footnote to what you said, uh, Matt, um, uh, on on the question John asked uh, uh, to you. And that's, um, so I feel in many ways you could, so you, you could say, the uh, 20th century, right, so the environmental movement really started with Rachel Carson, which really was, with, was about uh, Silent Spring, the, the, the impact of using technology on outer nature, right, kind of on, on, on our land and so on. And what's happening now is the unintentional impact of the use of technology on our inner nature. Right? So we are just at the very beginning. This is kind of the 21st century dimension of the same issue, which still the 20th century issue is not solved, but now we, we get to the next dimension. And um, the most instrumental book I have read on that topic is Shoshana Zuboff's um, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Mm -hmm. And the argument she makes is that you cannot understand this profound transformation of capitalism that we see that has happened um, over the past 12 years or 15 years um, with the... Perspective of the 20th century economics, which is, is it a monopoly or not, right? Mm-hmm. But that there's something very different at work. And why is it that the stock market is more decoupled than ever from the real economy, and it's driven by, by technology? And her answer would be because it's an entirely new business model uh, uh, driving that. And um, so that's kind of the business model of surveillance capitalism, which is not delivering you this service or that service, but essentially um, uh, manipulating behavior on the level of the collective, being able to shape the behavior on the level of the whole system successfully. And so, so you you look at the um, the great hack kind of the uh, Netflix documentary, you see the political dimension of that. But Shoshana Zubos in, in her book, she 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 makes the case how that applies to the um, uh, to the economy. Um, and um, the one of the most interesting terms she has um, is epistemolo- epistemological inequality. Because, um, now, you can go into all the details, but in essence, it boils down to something very simple, that there is a one-way mirror. That's the epistemological inequality, right? So there's a one-way mirror. We are providing, so there's a land grab of our data, right? No one ever really made a, uh, so these companies never really had a contract with the users, kind of that legitimizes kind of that land grab right but so there is like this um gathering of all this data using analytics to produce knowledge that allows you to predict and manipulate behavior of the level of the collective. and what she says is so basically they know everything about us but we don't see it And so that's kind of the epistemological inequality. It's a one way mirror, right? They see through uh, the the wall, but we can't. And I think that's the deeper issue there because it's at the end, it's an unethical business model, right? That puts, and it has everything to do with intention if you use technology, technology itself is neither good nor bad, right? It depends on the intention that you apply to create, disseminate and, 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 and utilize and use technology. And if that's, uh, it's, if that's focusing on empire building and profit maximization, AKA Facebook, um, then you get one thing. Right, so then you basically make everyone—you undermine democracy. You make everyone's life miserable. Right, as we know from the um, from the um, numbers of um, um, of depression and anxiety disorder of of, of heavy uh, social media users and particularly the younger ones. And um, But if you use technology with a, a different intention, and if you would create, for example, if you would empower users to take their data with them as they go to the next platform, right? That would be one single legislation that would shift the entire playing field. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so interesting what's happening in Europe, right? I mean, the least, the last place you would, um, expect education uh, innovation from right but in the field of technology right so that's where um uh, i think kind of the the citizen the user side uh, is um and creating legislation that creates an equal playing field really between users and citizens on the one hand and these big players on the other hand that would replace this um this uh, one-way mirror mm. I think that's the key there and it's a conversation we're not even having. I mean, um so even in the election, right? No one was talking about that at least some people were talking, one or two, a little bit about uh the, the Silicon Valley problem, right? The big tech problem, but only with a lens that's grounded in the uh, rooted oh, yeah, in the 20th right. century, yeah. not really in the 21st century version. So it's um I think it's it's a major topic and um the only reason these companies exercise their power at the expense of the well-being of the entire society is we not attending to that, yeah. because yeah. that land grab was never discussed, was never be was never part of the conversation, and that's a very important conversation to have.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And the, you know that land grab is not all that different than the land grab at the origin of this country. Um, and it's also, the other thing that comes up is the technology of derivatives in finance, you could tell the exact same story. The only difference is, at least there, there is a regulatory institutional framework set up to try to at least close some barn doors after the horses left. But in the one we're talking about now, there isn't even that institutional regulatory framework even conceived of, much less established. So I think that's a great, great conversation for the future. I'm going to switch to some um, incoming questions from our, our audience. Um, someone told me we got 500 people paying attention, which is kind of weird since I can't see anyone but the two of you. But um, but at any rate, um, this question, uh, Matt, was for you. Um, uh, what principles, so, so pause, fresh subject. We're going to go back to a different topic. Um, what principles of standard business education get challenged or thrown out when we educate people to do good work?
3: Oh, that's a good question. How much time do we have? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, I think for me anyways, um, you know, it's really about, I kind of come back to the consciousness shift. It's even what Otto was just saying about technology as a tool, right? And the consciousness behind how that's being wielded. Um, And so, you know, I think that in my, experience, it's been about really reimagining what is success? Like, what what does it actually mean to be a successful company? And how are we um, truly factoring in, you know, the externalities uh, into that success? Because I think that, you know, everything that um, I learned or was taught, that was maybe more kind of, and I'm, I don't have a conventional business education, so I can't speak to what's covered in, in the MBA program. But Um, You know, everything was really about, yeah, here's how to effectively use, you know, advertising to sell more things. Here's how to, you know, effectively use these social media channels to increase whatever, you know, it's all about growth, really. And um, I think when, you know, I I feel like that's a lesson that's just kind of hammered into us in, in every way, shape or form, even to who are the people that we really respect and admire? It's the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezoses, and these. Are, this is the paradigm of what success looks like. And you can have young people aspiring to, you know, wanting to be rich, wanting to be, you know, powerful, and all of these things, rather than cultivating that that eco consciousness or that collective consciousness. It's it's actually something that was kind of also on my mind as you were both just speaking about technology and something that I wanted to add. Uh, that's relevant to this question and also to my thoughts on Etsy. You know, who is actually also benefiting from all of this success? And you know, I think that the real um, opportunity for Etsy would have to have been a, a co-op that was actually owned by all of its members, mm-hmm. and that would be the same for, for any of these platforms, right? I we feel very differently. Owned
1: by its members. What's that? Imagine if Facebook was owned by its yeah.
3: Members. I mean, and it should be. And that and that would change a lot of things.
1: Right. Who wants to monetize data?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that's a different view of success. Right. The view of success is the very kind of individualistic one, which is like, this is how I will become very rich and successful or my uh, the other owners of the company will um, rather than how do we work for the benefit of all the people who are participating in this business. And so Um, That would be one of the kind of key lessons. Um, And, you know, in my own experience, it all, again, comes back to, you know, uh, everything that Otto said, actually, like, you know, cultivating that awareness and that mindfulness of of our interdependence and our connection to all living beings and places. And, you know, if one can cultivate that view, which I'm, you know, I'm sure there are examples now, and it seems to me that a lot of, you know, there seems to be some, some progress in business education like the Bard MBA program or Presidio and these other places that are, you know, now thinking more about business as social tool, the B Corp movement. And there's a lot of people who are thinking differently about business now. Um, but I think it goes back to that deeper place of recognizing, you know, how, if you're not successful, I'm not successful and operating from that place and trying to make the, the, the choices in your work, That are aiming to maximize the a more systems view of success um,
1: for all for everybody. So, just for the audience, in case you didn't notice, Matt wonderfully just tapped his inner feminine wisdom. Our conversation, (laughs) even though he is very much a man. Thank you for that, Matt. Sure. Um, Otto, do you have any any uh, any additional? I mean, obviously, education is at the heart of. What you do and Sloan is—it's not—it's not maybe Harvard Business School, but it's right up in in the high ether of conventional business teaching. So, what's happening there? Well, actually, not—that's probably not fair, given what's the, the whole Media Lab and everything that's happening at MIT. So, what's your thought on the? I guess the question is sort of the the the, the need for a, a radically different future of business education. Well,
2: I mean. I- I think uh, Matt described it well. There, there's nothing much I, I, I can add to that. I would say maybe one um, uh, uh, additional footnote to that is, um, so when I, and it's actually my general experience the last, it's not COVID, it's, it's like the last few years. You talk to people in business. Uh, let's say, who are more in traditional companies, you talk to people in governments who have traditional leadership jobs there and uh, uh, in the ministries and so forth. And what you find basically is that privately, when you talk to them, they agree with you that we are moving as a whole in the wrong direction, that we are basically about to hit the wall or that this process is already happening, right? We are hitting the wall, one, two, They personally say they would like to be part of, uh, so what they currently do and the way their organization is um, making decisions and uh, and pursuing strategies is going nowhere. They would agree on that, right? So it's not enough. It's not radical enough, given the challenges we face. Two, they wanna be part of a different story going forward. And then three, most of them would say, but I don't know how, right? It's just me. And I think that's a very, so those three things, we are moving in the wrong direction. I want to be part of a different story, but I don't know how. That's a almost universally felt sense on this planet right now. Many people share that. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's kind of the real question, I think. And the, the the business school of the future should be the answer to that, should be really instrumental for being helpful in answering mm-hmm. that question, the how, right? So. And it's um, so that's kind of where uh, why what you said is so relevant, Matt. And um, the the two things that I would like, coming from a Sloan perspective, that I would add is what you see going on at Sloan. For example, the past sustainability move from not very very marginal to you know more or less mainstream, kind of within a few years, driven by a few faculty and in particular by students um you see a lot more action learning right now i think that would be because this whole idea right i go like for a few years on campus and then you know i know something i learn something so we know that real transformational learning has to integrate head heart and hand you have to do it you have to live it so it's much more like integrated into a living ecosystem right of change initiatives that you participate in so those are like different learning modalities I would say they are like really interesting steps into that direction, but a lot more needs to happen there. Mm. Um, and now of course, with, um, uh, I mean the, uh, with uh, COVID and the, the, the online things, what it allows us to do is to really democratize the access to education and the access to conversation and to organize in a multi-local way, truly multi-local way, right, which is, really having the center of gravity in all these different places, but then allowing them to connect. Mm. So those are like um, collective learning processes that need uh, learning infrastructures. And that's where um, where we are just at the very beginning, I would say, but uh, a lot is possible, uh, I think given also the necessity for transformation when we look at the decade ahead. So I expect um, a a lot will be happening there. So I'm going to go to another question from our our um,
1: our community here. Um, This one is a sort of a layup uh, paid advertisement for the boat builders, Matt. Um, uh, Beyond education, what resources can we make available to encourage and help launch entrepreneurs who want to do, quote, good work? (laughs) <laughs> well, um, great. Thank
3: you for that. Uh, so, um, that a
1: literal question. I didn't even know. <laughs> yeah.
3: no, so uh, I and some uh, friends and colleagues are working on a new uh, initiative that we're calling the Boat Builders. And um, the basic idea is that um, as communities now, we need to be um, building and launching lifeboats. I think the lifeboat framing can be uh, problematic for some people. But what we're really talking about are the new ways of being and doing that um, will sustain us and that will help us build uh, a future where we're actually all thriving, right? Something that's based much more in justice and a deeper ecological sense and deeper connectedness to place. And so uh, we talk about these ideas and these um, also uh, concrete, you know, physical examples um, of these new ways of being as lifeboats. And the people who build them are the boat builders. And so, uh, what we do, uh, or what we're, we're working on right now, we haven't fully launched yet, is to provide, um, to very much hats off to you, John, multiple forms of capital. Uh, so, how can we um, provide the financial assistance, but also, um, you know, the connections, um, the experiential capital, right? The strategic yeah. and tactical support to help these uh, boats get built and launched in a way that they are there for everybody. Um, and so our new initiative is just that, um, to identify the people in the communities uh, in the Hudson Valley that are building these lifeboats and give them the support that they need to launch them and, and to kind of bring it full circle. You know, These lifeboats may be businesses, these lifeboats may be initiatives. These lifeboats may be buildings. These lifeboats, lifeboats, might be actual boats. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we're we're kind of agnostic. It's really about how do we use capital in in its most appropriate forms, and what forms of capital, and also, you know, whether it's financial capital. If it's financial capital, rather, um, you know, maybe it's a grant, maybe it's an investment, maybe it's a loan. You know, it doesn't really matter. It's uh, you know, the way that we think about it is it's about what's, you know, what's the boat that we want to build and what's the impact that we're trying to have and let's use whatever tools are at our disposal um, to help build them. And so that's that's the basic idea. Uh, so, you know, if you're in the Hudson Valley, uh, stay tuned um, and there'll be opportunities to um, build your lifeboat. I think the other uh, thing that I'll mention is, you know, it's not just lifeboats, it's all of these ships too, right? Stewardship and friendship, all the, all the ships that we can build. Uh, and really at the end of the day, it's about connection. It's about coming together in our places and creating the particular solutions that are going to build
1: a livable future. Nice. Nice. So I'm going to, I'm going to again, switch course a little bit uh, on you, Otto, this time. And um... Uh, you, you know this, but you don't know, I'm about to ask you this. Um, I, I had the privilege of spending um, about five days in the Yucatan jungle last fall uh, under the guidance of a man named John Milton. And it turns out the place I was was where a lot of the, um, I don't know how to say it, Otto, you can, you can explain it, uh, but, but certainly it was part of the origin story of the President's Institute and Theory U and a lot of the work that's being done by your colleagues up at MIT, several of them were there literally sitting under the same tree. And and, uh, it's interesting, John Milton was the first and to my knowledge last ecologist who has served on the Council of Economic Advisors to the President of the United States, which happened to be President Nixon. Um, But he's also a shaman and and deeply, a deeply, deeply connected into the natural world. And I would, I would, I was, I was fascinated reading your last lecture, Otto, in, in, sh- in your sharing your story about the fire and how that fire as a, as a child at, at your family farm, kind of, and a, and a comment your grandfather made triggered you to sort of be focusing on the future and learning from the future. and And I was, I was wanting to ask you to reflect on your experience with John Milton and the natural world and how that's all influenced your thinking as well.
2: Well, uh, uh, John Milton, so the the founder of um, uh, sacred passage, I think kind of that's uh, Yeah the name of his organization. I mean, he has been a very um, influential. I think we share the story a little bit in the book, Presence, kind of uh, Peter uh, Sengi and Joe Jaworski, Betty Sue Flowers and myself. And um, so, and it really connects to, um, to your emphasis, Matt, on places. Right. So, and also really to the, to the lifeboats because what John really would say is, um, so essentially, so he's an educator and what he does is he puts you out in nature. Right. And so he finds kind of these, so, and, uh, he, he is actually, um, he's preparing you a little bit and then you're on your own for a week or two or more. And, um, you know, you can use some practices and so on. But basically what you learn to do is to relate to uh, nature as a teacher. And what he basically says is, uh, before he sends you off, um, when you truly open your heart, right, to nature and connect on that level, you will be amazed what she is giving back to you. And in um, much of what we do, one of the main obstacles is kind of the, the continued downloading, right? The continued, the continuation of habitual, of habits of action and thought. So what this really does is um, kind of it's this stopping experience into really opening up in a more profound level and then deal with whatever comes up for you you know both from within but also what what happens in that place for you so for me this is uh, this has been a very um, uh, personally kind of a, a very how should I say grounding experience kind of that, that uh, allowed me to, to connect deeper to my own sense of who I really am. It also helped me then when I came back um, to, you know, in if you have like a daily practice or something like that to get to a deeper place sooner. Right. So it doesn't need, I mean, we can't always just two weeks disappear or something. Um but uh, so that's uh, what I also felt. and John is just um uh is also really maybe um a role model right of the um of the new educator, if you want, which is yes, you learn some methods and tools, but what you really learn is how to on a much deeper level connect uh, the being and... The the, the the essence of the planet, right? And the place kind of you're in. And I think particularly in this current situation, this is more relevant, kind of more important than ever kind of, you know, for um, anything we think about in terms of transformation, but also uh, education. And um, we, so when we, um, uh, in the you process of the methods and tools that we um, we we have been developing and using in a number of contexts there's always kind of that element showing showing um, showing up one way or another and there's probably nothing better uh, we can do in terms of if, if you want to help a community to um, uh, to go to a profound transformation to really disconnect from your habitual environment, get out of that bubble and connect to a real place, mm-hmm. and then kind of uh, go through such a process
1: agreed and and matt i'm curious I know you're a voracious reader what what are what are you reading these days that what are you what are you what, what book has jumped out <laughs> of the shelf? To- you
3: know, I'm, I'm reading far less uh, than I would typically, just given the nature of having three kids at home <laughs> all the time. Uh, and it's interesting. Uh, the book that I'm currently reading is about weeds, actually. Um, and it's a gardening book. Uh, and it's really, and I, you know, it, it just happens to be uh, the truth. That's what I'm reading right now and um but it's an interesting book because i think on some level you know it's about well like well what's a weed and what's actually like a plant that we want to cultivate and i think that that's um you know about shifting our relationships to how we see ourselves in the natural world and so this book is really about wow this is it's so relevant to otto too like seeing what emerges in your garden like what wants to be there Uh, rather than you know fighting these things that keep coming back and they're so hard to uh, to fight back but maybe it's actually because those are the those are the appropriate things uh, for that place so um, that's that's been interesting and um, you know right now what I'm mostly focusing on is trying not to read too much news uh, Hmm. because that's You know, it also comes full circle to what you were talking about with the advertising model, right? And all of those uh, messages on the upside down, you that on the N that Otto was talking about is that is what's in the newspaper. And that's what actually sells advertising and gets people to click. And, you know, it's, I find personally, it's very, it's kind of paralyzing you can get trapped in that and that's just like the news is so bad Uh, and in the lead up to the election especially it's it's getting scarier and scarier so i'm trying to say well what can i uh do about that and um just focus that energy that i would spend fretting and pouring over uh newspaper stories about the upcoming election or whatever it may be and and put that into that same energy into positive work in our community what's the name of Uh the book that I'm reading is weeds. Oh, weeds? Or, or is that the weed book? Yeah. Um, I'll grab it in a second. Sorry, I think it's called um, No worries. It's wild wild about, wild about
1: weeds. Wild about weeds. Yeah. <laughs> so we're uh we're we're down into the closing 10 minutes here. Um uh, and it's been a great conversation. Um, I hope everyone uh again to 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 not be able to see faces is makes it hard to tell how we're doing I trust people are still out there in, in Zoom land um, but as we as we as we move toward closing, um, I guess I guess I have two two prompts one is if either of you have kind of a short burning question that you want to ask the other, um, why don't we start with that and, you, and if you don't, that's fine, but I just wanted to give each of you an opportunity to uh, to do that if you had something
2: burning. I think a a question I would have uh, of you, Matt, is um, the place base, right? So you you talked about Hudson Valley. What about, um, so what are your thoughts about other places that are not Hudson Valley? Kind of what what can people do there when maybe the infrastructure is less um, developed? And how can we then is there, due? So so what, what is, because not everything is bored, most global problems can be broken down to local solutions, but, but not everything. There is kind of also something on a regional, uh, national uh, or global level. So how are we aggregating? Because a lot positive happens on a local level, we know that, but it really aggregates and is shifting the national or the global dynamics. So what are your thoughts about that?
3: Um, yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, you know, I think um, it's kind of a yes and, um, you know, you, you can't ignore the global. Um, but I believe that the solutions are going to be local. And so what I'm hoping is that it's, you know, a big number of local solutions that are connected around the world that we're learning from each other. And that maybe that's an appropriate use of technology how we're sharing those solutions and i know john's been uh, doing some work around that uh with his uh that
1: looks that sounds like the regenerative communities network (laughs) yes it sure does so
3: uh, there's a good shout out for uh one of john's projects um i do think that um yeah i mean i i feel like we are you know um, it is a very particular set of circumstances in the hudson valley um that allow for you know, it's to be um, a place where these kinds of work could happen. But to quote Gary Snyder, who has his name I couldn't remember in the yeah. name, <laughs> it's uh, about, uh, yeah, really like finding your place where that ever it is and then doing what, um, what you're able to do. And, you know, one of the other uh, ideas I've been thinking a lot about is responsibility. And, um, you know, as, as, a, as one's ability to respond to something, And not everybody has the same ability to respond. And not every place has the same ability to respond. So if you have a high ability to respond, you have a greater responsibility to do so. And so I think that it is about place by place, the solutions, um, but then that they are connected. And so maybe that's what we need are these unifying forces and platforms that are going to be um, ultimately um, moving to shift the, the whole. Um, and so you know, just the, the last thing I'll say on that, I'm not sure I'm entirely answering your question, Otto, but um, I have become so discouraged by politics in this country, especially on the federal level. But I actually have been hopeful when I see um, municipal level politics, right? Um, I feel like the divides of of right and left are less profound. I feel like actually everybody kind of wants the same things for their place, clean water and fresh air and a good job and, you know, a safe... maybe even work. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, and so, um, you know, I do feel that if we can have a kind of grassroots movement, it's the same thing I feel about the climate crisis. We're, we're seeing the inability of global, of, of nation states to be able to really come to consensus on the the level of meaningful action that needs to happen. But if the constituents, if the electorate comes together to actually force that change place by place, that's what's gonna ultimately shift the whole. So, you know, the question for me is, right, um, how do we not just create these little islands, but actually um, begin to thread them together and do it quickly enough that we'll actually do it in time.
1: So um, just looking at the clock, Matt, maybe I'd ask you to just keep going with your final reflections that you sound like you're halfway into them anyway (laughs) well maybe
3: maybe that that was the. I'll let you um yeah I mean
1: I I, I'll come back to it
3: it's um to quote another uh famous line from Teddy Roosevelt do what you can with what you have where you are which is similar to Gary Snyder's idea and so yeah I do you know I hope that that Otto is right um that you know we are at the we are just at the that wall of that emerging future um, coming out because it does feel um, like a really dire moment in the world um, on so many different levels, and um, you know I do believe though that that profound change only really comes you know when you've had that incredible disruption, and that right now this moment is asking for it, and I I agree with Otto that actually. Um, I think deep in our hearts, we all know that we're on the wrong path, and um, if enough of us can wake up in time, you know, or maybe we need to go even further down to have that uh, ascension. So um, I think I'll leave it at that. Thank Great. you very much for uh, having me today. Beautiful.
1: So Otto, we're going to give you uh, the teacher the last word, and and the way I would frame it is is you know. You've got a U and an upside down U, and it seems like that's the battle of the century. And tell us why the upside down U is going to prevail, or the right side up U is going to prevail, and we're going to find our way around the, the bottom and up to the right, as opposed to getting crushed by the top down upside down
2: U. I think the key is in recognizing that we are producing both of these things, right? So, which is really looking into the mirror. I, I think that's uh, that, that's the key, and that's I think, uh, most easily done on a local level, right? Because that's where the commons are right in our face, kind of, I don't need to explain to you, we are looking at it together. Mm. And uh, that's why most of the new structures kind of start on a local level, kind of the truly new ecosystem way of organizing. So uh, for me, um, one of the, Think that I mean I was um, you know reading up and uh, watching documentaries on the Civil War and slavery and all, all these uh, uh, things. And uh, w- one thing I, I realized there, uh, I had the other day a discussion with the um, head of uh, with uh, uh, two hundred uh, leaders in the UN, and the head of the UNDP reminded us that when uh, the UN's global uh, type of governance system was uh, imagined, right? It was in the darkest hour of the 20th century, 1941. And then five years later, it was reality. And um, when you look at the beginning of the civil war here in the United States, right? It was so, uh, I mean, everything, I mean, it, it looked so terrible and everything was moving in the wrong direction. And only then came kind of this uh, inspirational um, uh, uh, reimagining the, the, that fight, right? you know, bringing kind of the end of slavery uh, into that. Right, that was not at the beginning. And so, uh, the one the biggest progress that we made as a society was born in the darkest hour. Right, and I think we are right so in this century we are in one of these or the first of these hours right maybe there are more and we have that possibility to make this uh, jump forward and all the pieces are already there i think uh, particularly on a local level as uh, matt and you both said so i feel i saw in um, you know as a young, young person i was active in the green and peace movement in eastern and western europe and germany and uh, i saw the berlin wall collapse and the disbelief of everyone who brought it down right because people couldn't believe their own impact that they had uh, even weeks or months before and back then we saw the collapse of a wall between two social systems capitalism and socialism today we see the collapse of a wall between self and system between me and my own experience and others, right? So I watch the eight minutes, 46 seconds, and the wall is melting down that used to be there between me and others. And um, I think that's where a new formation, a new social structure is being born. And it will start small, it will start local, but it has to grow and it has to uh, eventually transform Uh, the larger system that is hitting the wall and that is more or less dying, right? But it's yet so um, incredibly powerful Mm. that we can also not totally take our eye off of it. So that's a little bit, and I'm struggling with with the same thing, right? How much paying attention to one side and the other, and, uh, but I believe that from an awareness-based systems change, the ultimate leverage point is realigning our attention with our intention, right? Realigning kind of what we pay attention to with the emerging future that we want to see, and that's already existing in seed form today.
1: So we stop reading the newspaper and start focusing on our local regenerative work.
2: I'm not sure totally stopping. I mean, that's <laughs> not <laughs> keep <a distant laughs> we... on it. We have a homeopathic doses.
1: And- yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Sounds so- like fake news, Otto. Yeah. <laughs> well, the the uh, I learned in system science, systems only change in response to pressure. So the pressure is stir- certainly on, and that doesn't mean it'll will emerge into a better place, but it certainly means that we better put our agency to work to to uh, to influence that outcome. So, anyway, this has been a great conversation. I'm sure I'm getting the hook here to get us off the tube and uh, let everyone get back to work. Uh, Good work, I'm sure. And so thank you both uh, for this great conversation. Thank you, the Schumacher Center for making this possible. And uh, thank you mostly for everyone I can't see out there who's uh, invested some of your your valuable time to join this conversation. Uh, More information about the lecture series is on the Schumacher Center website. And uh, that's all the commercials for today. Thanks, everyone, and have a great, great day.
0: Thank you for listening to the Schumacher Conversations. To hear more from visionary thinkers in the New Economy Movement and to discover 40 years' worth of Schumacher Lectures, visit our website at centerforneweconomics.org. You can strengthen our mission to bring about a just and sustainable global economy by making a donation at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate, or by purchasing pamphlets of your favorite lectures at centerforneweconomics.org slash order dash pamphlets.